We're so glad that you're listening to the Branches Podcast. If you're in the Houston area, we'd love to see you in person at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. For more information, go to brancheshtx.org. We hope this message helps you draw closer to God and that you hear the good news that you belong. Thanks for listening. Good to see all of you. If we haven't met before, my name is Colin. I'm the pastor here at Branches, and it's just uh, a joy to be with you in worship today. If I need to get like pumped up in the morning, I think from now on I'm going to watch that bumper video. Uh, really, really great. Uh, grateful to Lauren and the media team for for making that. As we start this new series uh, called Spiritual, and we're really excited about this series because it taps into a conversation that I think a lot of people are having. Uh, if you would let us know that you're here today, if you would check in uh, and you scan this QR code, you can fill out your information, let us know you're here, especially if you're a guest with us today. I'd love to connect with you and know that you're with us in worship today for this conversation about spirituality and what it means to be a spiritual person. And like I said, uh, this isn't a conversation that I'm prompting or that's coming from me, but from a cultural conversation we're having. And we can look at the statistics. There's a group called Barna that kind of surveys the religious landscape of America and the West. And I was looking at some of their statistics this past week about spirituality and the spiritual life. And among non-religious people, so people who are decidedly and self-professed atheist or agnostic or just nuns, as we call them, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, different sort of nun, uh, talk about spirituality. When they're surveyed about spirituality, about a quarter of them say that they're spiritually open, A quarter of them say that they're spiritually growing, so they're involved in some spiritual aspect of their life, and some say they're spiritually curious. And that really grabbed my attention, because even as we see in the survey, non-religious people, people who are decidedly saying, I'm not a religious person, are saying that they're spiritual. And maybe you've heard this, or maybe this is how you self-identify, that you would say, I'm not really religious, but I'm spiritual. I think it's a really common thing. Another thing that Barna has pointed out is that as that self-designation has risen and an accelerating rate up and to the right, people who say that they are religious is going the opposite direction. More and more people are identifying with spirituality. Even Christian people are identifying with the word spiritual more so than with the word religious. I find that not just interesting, but important a worthwhile conversation. When also, again, surveyed, you know, why would you choose the designation spiritual over religion? And in fact, why would you reject organized religion? There are kind of four main reasons that people list. Uh, The first one is kind of boiled down to uh, something maybe many of us, maybe all of us have experienced is the hypocrisy of the church. The way that the church has hurt and harmed people in our world. So like, why would I want to be a part of that? important one. Uh, The second one, and this is a conversation I have with a lot of people, is like, I can't stomach the claims of religion. 
like they're beyond something that I could accept for myself or say yes to. Religious claims, organized religious claims are crazy and I can't embrace them. Uh, the third one is maybe a, a more of a moral or emotional or heart posture is the problem of evil. So I look at the world around me and I see suffering and heartache and hardship and I wonder how I could possibly be a religious person when that reality confronts me. And the last one, uh, maybe one that like cuts a little deeper, maybe makes us a little more uncomfortable, is how many people report in that survey that the reason they're not interested in religion is because religious people have hitched their religious wagons to politics. There's like an indistinguishable understanding between how people vote and how they pray, and it's gotten too mixed together, and too mixed together for someone to embrace it. All of these things, I, I understand and uh, want to lean into and want to have conversations about and have a kind of burden for even that I, I feel hurt when I hear that the church has harmed other people because I feel a responsibility for that person. Or I feel a responsibility as somebody that follows Jesus for, to, to be someone who addresses the hurt and suffering and pain in the world. And I feel a responsibility then also to have these conversations about like why has some people in the church married their belief with what they believe about politics. I feel a responsibility for that. And again, it's, it's not just me. It's a, a, an important conversation because so many people are having it. There's this really kind of startling statistic about Google searches in the time of COVID. And I've shared this before, that how alarmingly high the, the Google search, how do I pray, was Googled during COVID. And then looking under those numbers, how many people who said that they didn't believe in God asked that question, <laughs> looked for resources on how to pray or to have some spiritual practice? Avowed atheist, overt atheist, Bill Maher, political commentator, uh, was asked, like, you know, you're, you're not religious, you don't believe in God, you think religious people are, are stupid even, uh, but do you have any interest in spirituality? And his answer was, uh, maybe if I get the time, I'll get around to it. <laughs> so even someone with that abrasive posture at least has some curiosity, at least presented curiosity or interest in what it means to be spiritual. I want to show my cards from the beginning about where I'm coming from. Because this is also part of the conversation, is uh, for the longest time, I knew and addressed in myself that I was a religious person. At some point in my life, I accepted the claims intellectually of Christianity. I was part of the church. I was really ingrained in the life of the church. I went to church programming. My best friend growing up was our pastor's son. I was around him a lot. He's just a normal person. Uh, let that be a lesson to you. He's just a regular guy, but he was also my pastor. And uh, I went on youth group trips, and I did confirmation thing, and I went on these trips to kind of discern a call to ministry, and I loved the church. I embraced the church because from my experience, unlike some other people's experience, the church embraced me, was kind to me, and helped me, and, and gave me a, a guidance for my life that I desperately needed at that point in my life. I would say at some point, that I would probably identify then as religious but not very spiritual. And this came as a, a painful realization, honestly, where I had like the, at least in some capacity, the intellectual part nailed down. Like, let's look at the creed. Yep, 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 got that one, believe that one. Struggling with that one, but I affirm it. Yes, agree. In terms of service, check, you know. 
And I had the action part, at least in some capacity down, like that I knew the importance of caring for the poor and lifting up the lowly and caring about the oppressed and the marginalized. But what I found was missing in my life because I encountered people for whom it wasn't missing in their life was spirituality. To be a person of, a person with the heart posture of the life of the spirit, as Christians have called it for so many centuries. And I wanted to be a spiritual person. I wanted that heart posture. I wanted to identify both as a religious person and a spiritual person. And so I started to learn from people who were spiritual. I was just talking to somebody in the lobby about Dallas Willard, who I mention all the time. It talks about spiritual formation. People in my own family and the kind of three feet around me who, who are disciplined and deep. And I wanted that to be a deep and disciplined person, not just somebody who nodded his head when somebody said something (laughs) Christian-like. So that that, that kinda comes as the foundation too. And one of the the first places I I identified or or searched for spirituality was in the power of habit and spiritual discipline. And again, we've talked about that a lot here. And one of the first places in, in that area of interest was people's morning routines. Anybody have like a really, really good morning routine? Maybe just a regular one? I said, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Landon said to me this week, my wife Landon said, uh, remember when you were really into morning routines? It was like, operative word is remember. They were like, there, there was a time. And even then, when I was really into them, it was like I was interested in other people's morning routines. And it was kind of like, um, I'd like to have one one day, you know? And so I would read about, uh, you know, famous people's uh, morning routines, presidents and musicians and, and artists and public figures. And there's this... Uh, thing on YouTube called PBS Idea Channel, not around anymore, RIP, I miss it. Uh, And Mike Regnetta, this kind of public thinker intellectual, he spent one of his episodes talking about morning routines and the kind of what he called mesmerism of a morning routine, that it kind of gets you in the zone. So he talked about Friedrich Nietzsche, who would wake up uh, early, early in the morning, take a cold bath while drinking warm milk. I'm not going to adopt that one, pass. or uh, Simone de Beauvoir as uh, another author who uh, she was, what he says, by leaps and bounds, not a morning person. And finally, the boredom of laying in bed would wrench her out of her bed. <laughs> I more identify with that one. <laughs> uh, but then eventually she'd sit down to write and then she would write enough to go meet up with her friends. That was her reward. And then he describes Toni Morrison, kind of probably one of the greatest modern English authors today. Uh, And her morning routine was, she was a morning person, she'd wake up at dawn, watch the sunrise with a cup of coffee, and this is how she described it. To quote, make the connection. To become what she called the conduit. That's what her morning routine did for her, is it allowed her to connect herself to something deeper and from which then she would do her work. She would make her art. She would spout her words. She would publish her novels. Her morning routine was the foundation of her making that connection. Her, her morning routine was allowing her to be the conduit. And I imagine if we could ask her, if you miss your morning routine, do you feel disconnected from that something else? She'd probably say yes. And so that's what I was longing for in my spiritual life, was like, I need to have that routine, what we call the disciplines, the practice, to have both that depth that I recognized in spiritual people and that discipline that they had to practice day in and day out to, as Toni Morrison put it, make the connection, to be the conduit. She, she would say, but before that happens, that is writing, this had to happen. And that's honestly how the opening of the whole Bible begins. 
in, in Genesis. Before anything happened, this, this opening that many of you probably heard before had to happen. So we're in the, the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, and it says this. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I really want to zone in on those first two verses where we hear about the state of what is, or I guess, honestly, what wasn't. There was nothing. And God's activity on it or in it. We're going to learn a little bit of Hebrew today. It'll be fun. I promise. Uh, the beginning, it says that, the, the, it depends on the translation here, it's the, the world or what was, was formless and void, or a formless void. You're going to love this one. The Hebrew is tohu vavohu. You want to try that one? Tohu vavohu. It's so fun to say. And you can tell, we lose it in the English, that whoever authored Genesis was trying to bring about this poetic sense of like, there was this wash of nothing and chaos. When God began to create everything that is now, the world was chaos. It was tohu vavohu. It was chaotic nothing which doesn't really even make sense, but it's to apply to the mystery that, that, that somewhere in the beginning of time, there was nothing. And God's response to this tohu vavohu was to sweep over it. We see in the NRSV, which we read today, that a wind from God, it says, swept over. And the word for wind is ruach. You wanna try that one, that was good. You give a good guttural ugh at the end, ruach. And ruach means wind or even breeze sometimes or life or breath. When God breathes breath into Adam's nose to make him come alive, it's ruach. And here, this wind that sweeps over, this spirit, some translations say, sweeps over the chaos, over the tohu vavohu. It makes that contact. And if we hear anything today, if we kind of want to lay a foundation for what it means to be a spiritual person, it's that what Christians have wanted to say for centuries, and they even say it explicitly in the Bible, is that God is spirit. And it's, you know, people say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that he's spirit. <laughs> and God in spirit, God in, well, if we want to take ruach, as the Hebrew word is an understanding, is that God is life. God is the animating force behind all that is. God is the breath in our lungs, we just sang it together. That whatever is animated in the world, whatever creation we see, whatever beauty we see all around us, God is the force, the one behind it. And not an inanimate force, a personal force, one that speaks, one that longs, one that loves, one that cares, one that is, that is compassionate. And also for us today, when we think about what it means to be spiritual, one that creates. We see this word ruach and to identify God as spirit all over the Old Testament. And, and often it means that this, this, this spirit gives words to people, just like Toni Morrison. This, this spirit rests on a body or in a person's mouth and gives them the words to say. It starts movements. This spirit comes and it compels people to care for the poor and the oppressed. And the common thread through, through all of what the spirit does in the Old Testament is that it's generative. It's creative. It makes something out of nothing. 
And I would venture to say, even if it's a small compulsion, or maybe it's a really overwhelming compulsion, all of you feel that same compulsion in and of yourself. To make something, to do something, to create something, to, to build up something around you, whether it's a family or a work of art or a piece of work or a, a piece of writing or something else or a word to say or a beautiful home, you have that compulsion to create. And I would venture to say, I would argue to say that that comes from somewhere. And it comes from we're made from this God and by this God who is spirit and this God who creates, who makes something out of nothing, who breathes life into the chaos, the tohu vavohu of the world and makes something new. Of course, the greatest metaphor for this, again, is to understand art. So, you know, you think about your favorite artist, musical, visual, or otherwise, and something in them possesses them to make something out of nothing. One of my favorite artists is Gerhard Richter. Uh, I think we have a close-up of one of his paintings. Uh, and actually, these, if you go up in the Fine Arts Museum here, there's these like rhombuses on the wall. Those are his, and you're like, cool, rhombus, love it. A big fan of the rhombus, great shape. Uh, and this is a close-up of one of those. I don't think it's one at the Fine Arts Museum, but another one. And a lot of people are like, okay, Gerhard Richter, like, look, he just like spread some paint on there. Um, I could do that. Uh, he's also a master of realism. Uh, there's this really great painting. That's a painting on the right of his daughter, really beautiful. Another thing I love about him is that he's grumpy. Uh, and he's like this kind of curmudgeon German man. And I watched this interview with him, and like, it seemed like every in question the interviewer was asking, Gerhard was just like, no. You know, I don't, no, not really. Like, do you think art like really has any essential meaning? Like, is it necessary? No, it's not necessary. Just like, is it, I want to tell him it's been necessary for me. I've gotten a lot out of it. And he said in that interview, everything strictly speaking is coincidence. We just have to deal with it and make something of it. And he doesn't mean coincidence as he goes on and talking about, oh, like this circumstance happened and this, and it was this kind of magical, miraculous moment. But what he means by coincidence is that whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, whatever status or, or place in history or our own story we find ourselves in, our task then, as he's done as a painter, is to make something of it. Whether Gerhard Richter knows it or admits it or, or cares to say it, or maybe it's not even part of his ideology or understanding, that's spiritual. Or uh, a more modern example, uh, Jason Isbell, favorite songwriter of mine. In this song called Something to Love, the encouragement in the, in the chorus is, I hope you find something to love, something to do when you feel like giving up, a song to sing or a tale to tell. It'll serve you well. Again, that compulsion is identified that when you feel like giving up, when you find yourself in this coincidence, as Richter puts it, or this circumstance you find yourself in, you have this compulsion then to act on it and to make something of it. That comes from somewhere. That's spirituality. That's what it means to live a spiritual life, is to lean into that creative spark that you have, to lean into that invitation to make something of the circumstance you find yourself in to lean into the idea that, that the chaos isn't the last word, isn't the last thing, isn't the way the world is supposed to be, and by God's spirit, we can make it into something new, generative, creative, deep, and disciplined. I wanna, in my own life, this is me speaking for myself, <laughs> learn from spiritual people. And that's maybe our challenge today is from, from a, uh, if you identify more as a religious person, surround yourself with spiritual people that you can identify as spiritual. 
If you identify more uh, with spiritual uh, spirituality that you identify as a spiritual person, I want to say, I'm not going to say just the exact same analog. <laughs> you may not want to surround yourself with the religious people. As we identified early on, aren't always that great. <laughs> but you can lean into maybe raising the question even, maybe even just wondering, maybe with the religious people around you, lean into that generative creative spark and create a conversation and create a community and create a mutual understanding and create a world that, that, that's not chaos but ordered and not ugly but beautiful and not divisive but one. That's the invitation of what it means to be spiritual, to, to make that contact that, that um, Toni Morrison talks about. From my own tradition, from my own religion, if I can sh share about my religious background for a little bit, is this guy named John Wesley. Some of you are familiar with him. Started the Methodist movement. And when asked, this is a paraphrase, when asked about what he was seeking in Methodism within the Anglican church to create, to create this, this kind of movement within the church, what sort of religion are you seeking John Wesley said, I'm looking for the religion of the heart. Rather than turning up our nose, this is to religious people, <laughs> rather than turning up our nose or uh, uh, criticizing it or casting it out or excluding it from our own experience and practice, with John Wesley, I want to step into what it means to live and breathe the religion of the heart, the religion of the spirit, the religion of depth that's not just intellectual ascent, that's not just agreeing to it as a set of rules for our life, but to lean into that spark, that generative, creative force that I think even people like Bill Maher can identify. There's something more than me. There's something more than this. And, and that's what I want to learn from spiritual people because they seem to have so much more contact to it than I do. And I'm starved for it. And that's what we seek when we come to the table or when we sing together or when we lift up our prayers together or when we're simply in community or even share a meal as we will after worship today. That there's something more than me. There's something more than this. There's something more than the circumstance and I want to make something with it. And I want to partner with you and I want branches to be a place where we can say, okay, we're ready. <laughs> we're ready to sweep over the chaos of our world and empowered by the spirit as Christians have wanted to say, make something new and beautiful and kind and just and compassionate and good and to be ultimately, as we always say here, to become people of love. Jesus leaves his disciples uh, in John's gospel with some advice and some encouragement. And in John 16, uh, the passage right after he tells them that he's the vine and they're the branches, he says in John 16, chapter, or chapter 16, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now when the spirit, the wind, the breath, the life of God comes. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And the Father, all that the, all the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. God didn't stop creating in Genesis 1. By his Spirit, he continues through you, through the beauty of humanity, through the world around us, the circumstances we find ourselves in, gives everything that he has, all love and glory and honor to you. 
and continues to create, continues to sweep over our world, continues to be with us in every moment and be our very breath that we breathe right now, borrowed from him. And thanks be to God for that. Let's pray. Almighty God, by your spirit, make us spiritual people, creative, generative, new, whole, beautiful, loving, compassionate, kind, just people. May we have access to everything that you have through your son, Jesus. When we come to this table, when we share a kind word, when we lift up the lowly and the oppressed, when we make something beautiful. Make us beautiful in your name. Amen.